Greetings, adventurers. You're listening to The Quiet Journeys of Professor Atwood with me, Professor Atwood. I'm glad you're here, and I can't wait to tell you about my latest journey. So please, settle in, relax, and prepare to quietly drift off with me to parts known, unknown, and even some places in between. Comfortable? Very well. Let's get underway. So, welcome back, everyone. Wow, episode four. We made it. Okay, I understand that's not a huge milestone, but you take your victories where you can get them. It's like when you discover a new science modality that really only saves a few minutes. Sure, it helps, but you're not going to be invited to the science conference over it. But speaking of that, definitely still a little tired from that trip. I mean, a conference isn't as tiring as exploring, of course, but it can still be pretty exhausting. And I don't know, I probably didn't tell you guys, but I also got roped into being a science play judge at the last minute, and it was not an easy choice. There were so many great costumes, but in the end, I had to go with my gut. Professor Lamprey from Australia was dressed as Copernicus and had these little planets rotating around him the whole time. It was ingenious and, well, just fun, really. So, congrats to Dr. Lamprey, and uh, I didn't even deduct points for emitting Pluto. But, uh, you know, come on, a dwarf planet is still a planet. So, uh, I got back to the lab, and it was really good to be home after a trip like that. Uh, I don't know if I told you about my assistant, Bradley. He, he's not here now, but he's been instrumental in, well, uh, everything. He's a really good planner and has a great attention to detail. Sometimes, I'll admit, I'm a bit forgetful, and it's nice to have someone who can remind me of things like how long a bacterium has been growing, or if I'm running low on any or all isotopes, or if I've left the stove on. But the main thing he does, of course, is make travel arrangements. And he also keeps everything running while I'm away, and feeds the plants, which is really important. But, fellow adventurers, it is time to go on another journey. This time, down the Amazon. I know, whenever anyone mentions the Amazon, it conjures up all sorts of imagery. From Humphrey Bogart and the African Queen, to deadly piranhas, giant water snakes, murderous natives. And, by the way, that's not appropriate to say anymore. It's not, it's not correct. You have to say uncivilized indigenous people with crude homemade weapons. That, that's okay. And it also had completely untenable weather. Now, some of those things are true, and some of them are not. But can you guess? Well, here's a hint. Piranhas are thought to be in Africa, too, but they're not. They're only in South America, and they are indeed in the Amazon. But there are some things you don't know about them. 
like how they're trying to get to Africa and why. It has a bit to do with why salmon go back upstream, but more primal and also uh, not very practical. There's an ocean between them, for starters. Uh, it, it's a little baffling. I've never pretended to understand the unnecessary migratory motivations of piranha, so uh, we'll see what happens. But with all the mysteries about the Amazon River, I thought I'd pull back the curtain a little bit as we go there. First, I had to pick what kind of boat I was going to take, and I opted for a modified lanchas. Generally, they are slower ferries, but I hired a customized one, owned by Captain Flynn, an expat from the UK. He had a long and tragic backstory about how he arrived in Africa offering river commissions on a modified Lanchus-type ferry, but uh, summing it up, it largely involved a pyramid scheme and the migratory piranhas that I mentioned earlier. So I boarded Captain Flynn's ferry in Peru in the city of Iquitos, and it was not easy to get to, let me tell you. But it's a great starting point to get on the Amazon River, and it's a gateway to the rainforest, which is where we were headed. It's not my first rodeo, so I was pretty well prepared. Bradley had everything I needed from a compass to sunscreen to bug repellent, a flare gun, $10,000 in foreign currency. Uh, I'm not sure about that one, but uh, he said to definitely take it. A pith helmet, multiple changes of clothes, and of course, snacks. And Captain Flynn said anything I forgot he usually has extras of, except snacks. He said he has a very strict policy on snack rationing. But hey, you know, it was his boat, so when in Rome, as they say. The boat itself was nothing special on the outside, and I think that's just what Captain Flynn wanted people to think. All the upgrades and customizations were on the inside. And I have to say, sometimes I take my own vehicles, and sometimes I hire transportation. It's a good mix, and I get to see how other people do things. He had a small crew, and they all looked relatively happy. Except one deckhand who had a scar on his face, and I knew it wasn't the same King Deposer I saw on the Orient Express, but I really did wonder if they were related. Anyway, he was the one, if I had to pick one of the crew members who didn't look that happy, it would have to be him. But look, I, I, I decided I didn't want the trip to be awkward, so I, I didn't bring it up. Now, the Amazon River is the second longest river in the world, beaten only by the Nile in Africa. It runs through three different countries and is made up of over 1,100 tributaries, and 17 of these tributaries are over 1,500 kilometers, or 930 miles, in length, and together they form one of the most breathtaking rivers in the world. Only the Nile is longer in terms of total length, but the Amazon River is the largest river in the world measured by discharge volume of water per second. It has a total length of 7,000 kilometers, or 4,300 miles, and a discharge of 209,000 cubic meters per second. Well, I, I'm not really sure this is a competition with discharge numbers and all of the, you know, kilometers, but, you know, there you have it. The Amazon River flows from Peru through Colombia and Brazil. The largest part of the river is located in Brazil and was named by a Spanish explorer, 
Francisco de Orellana, who named the Amazon forest after being attacked by women who he compared to the Greek Amazons. Wow. Now, when you think about it, that's a lot to unpack. Um, all of those things, you're just picturing it happen. But you also have to wonder what Francisco did to make them keep attacking him. So, that's one for the history books, for sure. Now, 20% of the fresh water that enters the oceans comes from the Amazon's mouth. The fresh water enters the Atlantic Ocean and actually flows on top of the seawater due to lighter weight. The fresh water actually dilutes the salinity and changes the color of the Atlantic Ocean surface when they mix. I was looking forward to seeing that when we reached the end, but I wasn't there yet. So we were on our way and Captain Flynn was highlighting points of interest. It wasn't necessary, but he seemed to really enjoy his job and I didn't want to seem ungrateful. He pointed out the myriad of sea life and he must have known just where everything lived because as he was narrating, the fish and the animals popped up as if on cue. It was incredible. There are more than 3,000 species of fish living in the river. I thought Captain Flynn was going to name them all, but thankfully he got bored around armored catfish and pancake stingray. He also showed me the Botu, which is also known as the Pink River Dolphin. It's, it's oh, hard to describe. It looks like a cross between a miniature beluga whale and, well, a nightmare. It's a little off-putting to see them jump right out of the river, and I, I think they know that. Dolphins are very intelligent, as you know, and they can also be very playful. Of course they like scaring humans. You can tell, and it's all in good fun. The boto break the surface, scare you, then you all have kind of a good laugh about it, and soon enough, they're off to the next boat. There are also electric eels in the Amazon, and that's when Captain Flynn showed me one of his upgrades. By the way, an electric eel isn't an eel at all. It's a knife fish, which still sounds ominous, I suppose. I mean, if you had to pick, and you were a fish trying to pass yourself off as an eel, I mean, why, why wouldn't you? Uh, so, what Captain Flynn had done was truly remarkable. Whenever there was a school of electric eels, they give off a small passive current. Not enough to kill prey, but enough to power Captain Flynn's upgrade. He deliberately took us into a school of eels. Okay, I mean, technically it's called a swarm, but if they're not really eels, then it's a school. Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to um, split hairs here. I don't think either is wrong. Uh, but what was interesting is now, normally, electric eels are solitary but occasionally they do travel in groups, and that's when Captain Flynn activates his bioelectriferous harvester. I mean, it sounds worse than it is. It just collects the passive electrical current generated by the electric eels and then stores it into a large dry cell in the boat. It doesn't harm the eels, and they don't miss the energy since they were discharging it anyway. It's then used to power the ferry's air conditioning. I know it doesn't sound like much, but when you're on the Amazon in the middle of summer, I gotta tell you, it's kind of a big deal. So now, people are afraid of electric eels, and I can understand that. 
They send electric shocks in the water to paralyze their prey, and although one electric shock from an electric eel can't really kill a human, several of them together can cause irregular heartbeats and other symptoms. So if there's a group of electric eels minding their own business, it's best to leave them alone. Don't tease them, don't point out that they're not really eels, you know, that sort of thing. I gotta tell you, there's always one explorer who hasn't done his homework and has something to prove, and it always ends badly. So take a lesson from uh, Professor Johnson. Uh, may he rest in peace. So we were hitting a part of the Amazon that was incredibly peaceful and serene. The sun was shining, and I just let the warmth of the sun spread over my face to my whole body. And I was just surrounded by fascinating and interesting sights, sounds, and smells. The hum of the ferry, the waves, and the current slowly lapping against the sides of the boat. The sound of harvesting the excess electric eel energy, and even the hum and buzz of all the insects and animals we passed mixed together to create this soundscape that you just cannot hear anywhere else. In fact, let me uh, stop talking here for a moment so you can hear it. And that was just half of it. Everywhere I looked, there was something else to see. The mighty river, the distant horizon, the rainforest itself. It was a feast for the eyes as well as the ears. The different colors of the rainforest, even though most of them were green, was just idyllic. I felt like I was traveling through a secret part of the earth made just for me. Well, for me, Captain Flynn, his crew, and his customized ferry. It made me want to venture into the rainforest to find a hidden or lost civilization, but uh, truth be told, I wasn't really equipped for it. Generally, I like my own vehicle and crew for something like that. Look, as you've probably either guessed or experienced, some exploring is best done solo, and some you really need a group for. Like, I would never look for pirate treasure by myself. You have all the nautical logistics, plus curses to deal with, and you want someone watching your back as you break through a hidden cave wall on an uncharted island. Trust me, look, I'm not saying I haven't made mistakes, I'm saying you need to learn from them and pay your knowledge forward. So I was happy to enjoy the journey from the boat this time. It occurred to me later that there was absolutely no cell reception there, and even my satellite phone didn't work. Now, Captain Flynn's did, so I'm going to talk to Bradley about that when I get back. Soon the river opened up a bit and there was some commotion on the shore. It could have been anything, and I wasn't sure what it was at first. But I got my binoculars out and took a closer look. Actually, I didn't really need them, because Captain Flynn likes to investigate things, so he moved the ferry closer. It was a green anaconda, the largest snake in the world, fighting with a giant river otter. Now at first it didn't look like the otter had a chance. But then, something very odd happened. It seemed that the otter had an agreement with all the other animals near the bank. As the otter struggled, it was then helped by a jaguar, an electric eel, and a manatee. 
I can't believe I was lucky enough to see this. I've always postulated there was an Amazon animal version of NATO. And now I got to see it for myself. If I ever have enough time to write a paper about it, I will. After a while, the anaconda gave up in search of prey that was less connected. But it was another sight to behold, just seeing it depart. It was 30 feet long and over 500 pounds easy. So, uh, you know, I, I know snakes don't have expressions, but if I could read his, let me say it just didn't seem too concerned about the animal coalition that had just defeated it. You know, when you're 30 feet and 500 pounds, not a lot can really bother you. Now, Captain Flynn showed me the best part of his furry upgrades. He installed a full-color sonar camera that could translate sonar readings to color HD images in real time. I thought it was to show me what's at the bottom of the Amazon River. He said, no, it's to show you the river that's under the river. You heard that right. That's right, adventurers. There is a river under the Amazon River. This is one of the newest pieces of information that was unveiled in, say, 2011, and something that a lot of people just aren't aware of. The underground river is named Hamza and flows miles below the surface. So what does an underground river flowing under one of the largest rivers in the world actually look like? We fired up Captain Flynn's sonoscanner and took a look. Uh, honestly, on first glance, it was a little disappointing. On that first glance, it pretty much looked like just another river, except smaller and darker. But that was deceptive. As the Sano scanner warmed up and began translating images, another picture appeared. First of all, we saw fish. They were brightly colored, but most likely blind, so I doubt they could really enjoy it. Um, clearly, these Hamza fish had isolated themselves and don't really like crowds. But the underground river held another secret. It followed the above river. Why? And then, as I looked closer, I knew. I started seeing other aquatic life in that underground river. Electric eels, piranhas, and even our friend, the giant green anaconda from before. But they weren't hunting. They weren't feeding. They were all just swimming and with purpose. Finally, I realized that the Hamza is really a freeway for the river. There's so much life in the Amazon that it's gotten too crowded. So if the fish or animals need to get somewhere in a hurry, they use the Hamza. But it also seems to be neutral ground. Everyone uses it, so everyone is safe. It's like the club car on the Orient Express, except underwater and underground, and accessible only by fish and water snakes. But there was one other trick the Hamza River had up its sleeve, and it's why I chose this particular time to visit. There's a place where both rivers meet, and once a year, there's a festival. It's not on the map. You just need to ask the locals where to go. All the people get together to celebrate the beauty and majesty of nature and our world. It's not Earth Day, it's a few months later because they didn't want to step on any toes. It's Amahamza Day, and the festival itself is spectacular. 
It tries to have a neutral carbon footprint for the whole day. All food and packaging is biodegradable, and there are no sound stages or microphones. All natural. Okay, except for the VIP section where you can run a bungalow with a fridge and hospitality service. But other than that, it's an all-green event. I timed this journey to end at the festival, and I was not disappointed. Everything from the music to the cuisine was all top-notch and locally sourced. There's nothing like listening to samba music while eating farofa at an outdoor, not-really-earth-day festival. I listened to some great local stories, like about how a special green anaconda had lived for a thousand years and contained all the knowledge of the rainforest, and was willing to share it with travelers in exchange for a few hassle-free meals. I also met some fellow explorers who had come from the Antarctic just for Amahamza Day. They complained about the heat, but I kind of expected that. So the festival was amazing. It was a full day of eating, music, relaxing, talking, socializing, learning. But all too quickly, the sun was setting, and soon it was time to go. It was also time to say goodbye to Captain Flynn and his crew. I thanked him profusely, and we promised to share nautical upgrades in the future. I offered to have him visit the lab someday, but he said he rarely leaves his boat now, and that's just the way he likes it. I can respect that. The crew member with the scar gave me an off look like he knew me, and his scar did seem bigger by the trip's end. But again, I didn't want to make a thing out of it. So I just waved and remembered that I still had the number of that fourth detective from the train. But I took one look back at the Amazon, the water, the banks, the tree line, and just took it all in. I listened to the wind through the trees and to the gentle river current. I was in eastern Brazil, at the mouth of the river as it flowed into the Atlantic Ocean. I looked back and forth, and in that moment, I felt like the earth had indeed let me in on a little secret. There's a balance. Fresh water and salt water, sun and moon, earth and air, eels that are really fish. The earth, in that moment, just wanted to let me know that it knows what it's doing. I looked back and forth again and got the message. All in all, it was a very satisfying and enlightening trip. All of my journeys affect me in one way or another, and this one was no exception. At the end, I just felt closer to everything. And I hope you enjoyed hearing about it. Perhaps you'll get there for yourself someday. But that's all for now. Thank you, fellow adventurers, and I'll see you next time. Look, just one little word about the Patreon before we, uh, we wrap up. And I just want to let you guys know, you know, science and exploring is expensive, but I would like you to join the White Cat Adventurers Club you'll get something special. you get a soundscape of every episode. Think of it as a blank adventure canvas for your ears and mind. So you'll get a version of the story without the story. You'll get added music, sound effects, and ambient noise. So you can create your own adventure story in your mind as you drift off to sleep. But you also get other things too, like access to my weekly journal, exclusive news and updates from White Cat Entertainment on other things that they're doing, everything from comics to other podcasts and other 
business ventures that they seem to be uh, working on. So check that out, and I'll see you next time. Thanks, travelers. Quiet Journeys of Professor Atwood was created, written, and performed by Chris Mancini and produced by White Cat Entertainment. It is a work of fiction. Maybe. Music and sound design by Ron Tansky at rontanskymusic.com. For more info and merchandise, go to whitecatentertainment.com.